Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, My guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories uh, is many things. He's a company director, a management consultant, a writer. Uh, He has been involved in much of this state's sporting success uh, over the years, which we'll tell you about in some detail over the next hour or so. But there is so much more uh, to the story of my guest for this episode. So it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Nick Marvin. Oh, good afternoon, Tim. Good evening, Tim. And good evening to your listeners as well. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, Nick, we'll, we'll get to you know your, your time uh, as part of the Wildcats and, and the Lynx and more recently uh, teaming up with uh, Twiggy Forrest for his, uh, his rugby endeavours. But... Uh, Tell us about uh, the the early days of Nick Marvin. You were born in India. Uh, what do you re- recall of your childhood there? Well, it's a great story. I was born almost two and a half months premature in 1969. Two and a half months? Yeah. Goodness. My my mother had a slip-up trying to set up a Christmas nativity set, and, <laughs> and uh, I was meant to be born in February or late Feb, and she had to be rushed to hospital, and... In 1969, two and a half months premature is, is pretty much a, a very difficult chance of, of survival. And I was very lucky, though, blessed that the particular doctor in charge was uh, interested or a specialist in, in, in premature births, and so I survived. Incredible. And, and, uh, and then was sick most of my life and had two uh, bouts of typhoid as a young teenager and, and and for those of you who don't know it's not a great disease it's a, it's a symptom of poverty and second time around it's it can be quite fatal so ever since i guess at the age of 14 i've always felt lucky to be alive wow mm. and, and i suppose looking back um on your childhood and, and considering the way you go about you know your uh the way you conduct yourself i suppose in in a a corporate environment how much of that can we trace back to those early days in india do you think I think almost all of it, you know, you when you truly, genuinely believe that you're lucky to be alive and life is a gift, I think you do two or three things. One of them is that you make the most of every opportunity. Mm. Um, two, you respect other people's lives mm. and the, the sanctity of human life and that every human being, regardless of who they are and what they do, that they have their own aspirations. That yeah. To them, they're important and they want to live and love and learn um, and contribute. And leave a legacy, and and I think that's probably the greatest lesson of my life. Yeah, that in a land of a billion people, that every single one of those billion people has an aspirational yeah. goal to do more than just breathe. And what was your aspiration as a young lad? 
To be frank with you, survival. You know, we we um, we had no running water. You had to you had to walk down, you know, half a kilometer to go and get a pot of drinking water or two. Um, we didn't have a fridge, you know, sporadic electricity, and I was the poorest kid in school. And but my parents put everything they had to send us to school, and and I wasn't a great student either. So and here <laughs> I was, um, not 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 athletic, um, but but then we got an opportunity to come to Australia, which was yeah. Life changing, you know, and and some and that's a conversation for another day. But I think I think that the people that come here, um, especially those that have had it tough, uh, have a much better understanding of how lucky we are. Yeah, in this great country. Of ours. Yeah. Uh, so, at what age were you when you came? I was eighteen. You were eighteen. An adult. Yeah. 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 And uh, arrived in Australia in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, we, the whole family. The whole family, and uh, my sister was sent off to an uncle's house to go to school. And my brother and I and my mum and dad had to go to get a job. You know, we were living in one bedroom of my aunt's two-bedroom unit. Yeah. And she, her husband and her son, and she was pregnant, lived in the other bedroom. And I think we lived there for six months. We all worked. I went to Coles, worked full-time. Um, my dad worked in a factory. And then I wanted to get back to school, and, and they said, you've got to go back and do two years of school. So I said, I, I won't be doing that. I'll just sit the, um, the VCE or the year 12 exam, which I did in Melbourne. Yeah. And then went to uni after that. Yeah. Okay. And then over to the West, what brought you over here? It was interesting. My wife and I, we we had a couple of miscarriages and one of them was quite late term. So uh, it was tough. I had a consulting firm in Melbourne. We had about 12 staff. I was doing a lot of travel to America and we just thought we need a break. We need a change and we had an opportunity to sell out. And I was consulting to a public company that was involved mm. in technology. And, uh, and they said, look, we bought these six companies in Perth and they're not doing very well. So I said, look, why don't we make a change? Yeah. And so we left. We got a one-way ticket to Perth. My family had never been here. Yeah. And we sold our house in about four weeks. And in 2005, we moved to Perth and never looked back. Yeah. Well, haven't you just? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, since then, it's just been... Uh, an extraordinary story of of, of success and, and triumph, particularly, I suppose, uh, with the Wildcats. What initially attracted you to the Wildcats, which was already a pretty successful franchise, but, you know, when you were there, arguably they're most successful. So what what initially opened the door to the Wildcats for you? One of the companies that I was looking after was a sponsor of the Perth Wildcats. Yeah. And Andrew Vlahoff was managing the club then on his own. And, and I remember we, we tried to get out of it. And he came and saw me, as he always does, and talked me into it Yeah, and said things were tough. And so um, started going to the games, fell in love with the sport. I'd never been to a basketball game. I was going to ask, did you have a prior love of, of no basketball? Idea. No. no idea. And uh, started going to the games and fell in love with it. Yeah. And uh, got a friend, few friends together and I said, hey, you know, we should get involved and try and help out. And by the time we'd got in front of Andrew again, that weekend, Jack had um, Jack Bender had bought the club mm. um, and Andrew said look we why don't you come see Jack maybe you can come and you know work at the club and and so that's how it came about I had had uh, no sporting experience prior to that so obviously Jack saw something in you do you recall that first conversation you had with Jack Bender yeah my first meeting with Jack <laughs> was uh, was at a briefing um, for the for the Perth Arena my very right. first day I, I had to go and meet Jack he said well I'll see you down at um, Crown Casino, I think, Burswood Casino at the time, and there was yeah. a briefing about Perth Arena, and that's when I met him, and 
that's when the big conversation started about the car park. You know, yeah. And, and there was no car parking at Perth Arena, and Jack said, we need car parking. And they said, we can't afford it. And he said, oh, I'll build a car park. Yeah. And uh, I'll lease it out. You don't have to pay for it. And um, that was my first lesson from Jack after the briefing. He said, well, the arena is going to be full 40 days a year. Yeah. Car park's going to be full every day of the year. Mm. And I knew then that I was going to get, get a lot of uh, life and business lessons from Jack. Yeah. And what was meant to be a six months consulting role ended up being 11 years. Yeah. And talk us through the various, you know, roles and, and uh, the, the proudest achievements uh, at your time there at the Cats. I mean, I suppose transitioning from um, where you were playing in, into the arena, yeah. which is vastly bigger, yeah. uh, and convincing, I suppose, the league that you had the supporters to fill that or, or to go close to filling that was one of the challenges, yeah? I think the the biggest lesson I learned was that good management principles can roll into any industry, mm. you know, and and my first three years were tough. They were really tough because um, Andrew was running the club and, you know, and and I had a certain view about how to do things, which wasn't necessarily the right way. I didn't know. And, you know, you've got this great brand of success over so many years. Um, but then the tipping point was in March 2009. When the league was in, in real crisis and yep. the Wildcats were in, you know, we'd lost almost $8 million in those preceding three years. It had been almost 10 years before we won a championship. And Jack was on a boat in Europe and he'd rung me to say, shut the club down. Really? And, and I said, sure. And I met with the players and realized that they had no transferable skills. Yeah. And some of them have never filled out a CV. And, and that was a life-changing moment for me Yeah, because um, I, I rang Jack back and said, we're not doing this. And he said, I'm not losing. I'm not having that much fun. I said, look, what, what if I found a way that you don't lose any more money? Can we keep this club going? And he said, well, if we do, it'll be on you. <laughs> and, and, uh, That's a bit of pressure. It is. But, <laughs> you know, I was, I think I was um, 37 at the time and, you know, you, you seem to be a little bit more bulletproof and, you know, infallible at that age. And so I said, no, you're on. And um, and the rest was history. Yeah. So we had a blank sheet of canvas and we had an opportunity for me to say, look, simple management principles is what we're going to roll with. Forget yeah. about sport. And we changed the structure. We sacked the coach, one of my good friends. First decision was sack coach. Um, and then call the players in and say, look, we're changing our DNA from today. Mm. We're going to be focused on, on a different set of values. Mm. You know, we're not going to follow this one-dimensional pursuit of success on mm. the field because you're not going to win. Yeah. We're going to change the world. Yeah. And there was a gap. There was a gap in the market at that time. It was a big it was a big deal in Perth about, um, you know, drug usage in sport, lack of male role models, and we were a challenger brand that no one wanted to know about the Wildcats. You couldn't yeah. give away a ticket. So we said, hang on, why don't we do this? Why don't we become the Wiggles of sport? You know, and so I brought – what I thought was my management knowledge and say, there's a gap in the market. Why don't we pursue this avenue and let's rebuild this brand and the way we do things to suit that. Yeah. And the rest is history. Can I ask, did you use that line at the time? Let's make you guys the wiggles of sport. I did. (laughs) One thing I know is when you're speaking to athletes, you got to make it real simple. (laughs) Hold that thought, Nick. I want to talk to you more about this, uh, this cultural revolution that you are a part of. 
uh, at the Wildcats and why it is so important to you. We need to to, uh, to go to a break, though. Nick Marvin is our special guest in this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Nick Marvin is our special guest. And Nick, I'm keen to talk to you about your involvement with Andrew Forrest and World Series Rugby uh, a little bit later. But let's talk more about the Wildcats because you spent, what, about 11 years there, uh, mid-2006 to about mid-2017. Uh, it's a decent stint there. You were, you were talking before about how the club was in so much trouble and really the league was in a lot of trouble, wasn't it? Um, you've had to come in and basically not start from scratch but start something new. Um, how did you go convincing you know, everyone from players to staff, admin, management, that this was necessary and that this was the right way forward? I think it was a lot easier because we were on the bones of up. Yeah. yeah. We were down and out. And yep. so listening to a new voice was the only alternative. There is no way. I don't believe that that voice would have been heard if we were A, successful, yep. or B, we had an alternative plan. Yeah. Um, because even in my first few years and even till now you you still constantly get the remark that you know you don't you're not a sporting guy you know I didn't play SBL and NBL and then move into administration Mm. or similar pathways with AFL or rugby or hockey or any of those I'm an outsider not just to the sport I didn't even play sport yeah you know and and so to come in and have a voice um it it, it's hard it's hard but we had no other choice yeah and and so I I think my goal then was to say, just trust me on this one. I'll I'll take the risk, but just just follow me and give it a crack. And if it doesn't work, we have lost nothing. And how did you go? Did they line up behind you pretty quickly? Not really. Um, quite a few players left. Yeah. Um, I remember having a conversation with a couple of um, players, West Australians, who really struggled with the concept. And 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 I made a. Because you have a lot of voices in sport. Why, why was that? What was, the, what was the problem that they had? Because I don't think they understood what we needed to do to get back. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, success takes a lot of hard work and it takes um, hours of persistence at something. You've got to beat the rock and beat the rock and beat the rock and then one day that rock cracks. And so um, it's, it's not easy, right? And so mm. you walk into a room, this Indian guy has no sporting experience, comes in and says, you know what? Last year we did 12 school visits. Well, this year we're going to do 100, and next year we're going to do 200. And from this year, if you want to be a wildcat, you've got to do 350 hours in the community. Yeah. Now, we were averaging 25 or 30 hours in the community. Yeah. So immediately you would think people looked at me and said, this is stupid, you know. Um, and I said, guys, we have got to change the way we act around here. I said, there, we've got to subscribe to good manners, no swearing. And I remember you know, Olympians, athletes saying, what are you talking about? What's that got to do yeah. with winning yeah. basketball trophies? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a simple management concept. If you're in a high-risk, high-stress environment, you need something that keeps the wheels greased, and that's good manners. The last thing you want when you're in a high-stress environment is your manager to yell at you or swear at you. You're not going to perform. Mm. The lights are on. And, mm. and I explained it that way. I said, I'm not being 
ridiculous here. There is a reason for why I'm suggesting this. If we actually showed good manners and trusted each other and, and, and stopped swearing, now you're in a safe environment. So make a mistake. It's okay. Learn from it. Let's go again. There's absolutely nothing wrong with making mistakes. There's a lot of things wrong with bad manners, with mm. a lack of work ethic, but not caring. Of course, but go ahead and make a mistake. And when you make a mistake, you're smarter than that. And we want you having made those mistakes because you're mm. a better person for it. Mm. Um, I said no more headphones in public. And the players go, you know, basketball players love their music, you know. And so, again, what's going on here? And it's like, well, you're seven foot tall. Yeah. You're standing in an airport. My seven-year-old kid is too scared of you when he looks at you. Yeah. You put your headphones on, he's not going to come close to you. Now, don't forget, we're a challenger brand. We're the wiggles of sport. So take your headphones off, kneel down when you speak to a child, make eye contact at eye level. And we changed the way we started to work as a club. And whilst it was hard, we started. We won a championship in year one. Mm. That helped, mm. right? And mm. so I think that gave us some impetus to say, okay, maybe there's something interesting going on here and let's stick with this program. Mm. And, and now you, you see guys like uh, Damien Martin and, and Craig High, who we've had in here uh, for one of these chats, um, great ambassadors for the club, aren't they? And they do so much in the community. I suppose this is what you were trying to instill in the players over a decade ago. Well, with Damien and Greg, you don't need to. Yeah. Uh, I think there were two... Great human beings who yeah. I've really enjoyed um, having the opportunity to have worked with. Mm. Um, and you're going to always have outliers in any organization. But for the others to, to explain to them that, hey, you know, your average life of an athlete is about four to six years. So what are you going to do after that? Mm. And so the questions we asked our athletes when we signed them is like, how are you, how are you going to be remembered? You know, and and – for new athletes, for imports. I remember James Ennis, who I love like a son, you know, and I said, how do you like to be remembered, James? And he goes, for my dunks, man. <laughs> like, no, James, I'm not talking about that. I said, how would you, how would you like to be remembered? Yeah. And, and, and again, so it's about, well, what's your legacy? You know, having an impact is about having an impact on lives you've changed of people you never met. Yeah. And, and so when you explain that to an athlete and say, you're, a superman with a superman cape, and my son doesn't want to be like me. I don't have the superman cape on. But Damo, you have the superman cape on, and James Ennis, you do. And you only get to wear it for six years, Yeah. right? So are you going to use your superpowers for good, or are you just going to let it ride? Because no one's going to want to know you when you hang it up. Yeah. Like No one's talking about the ex-players, you know, and so when the penny dropped, it really dropped. Yeah. And, and, you know, then you'd have players come to see me about saying, hey, listen, let me go to Royal Perth. I want to go catch up with this kid I heard about. And you get people ringing up saying, Greg High just put money in my parking meter because he saw an inspector walk by and parking meter expired. And, you know, Damo jumped out of a car in an accident in Melbourne and tries to save the guy out of the car. I mean, these guys are good human beings. Yeah. And people follow that in the car. And I don't think we would have got to where we did without those types of guys who bought in early. Now, remember, no one knew who Damien Martin was. When Damo arrived, he was an injured player who averaged seven points a game. But we saw something amazing in him to say, hey, I don't care about that. And we'll talk about strengths and weaknesses later if you like. We don't care that you're only you know, hitting down eight points a game. 
you bring so much more to an organization that's far worth far more than eight points a game. Yeah, yeah. So, so given that and that transition that you were uh, bringing to the club, um, were, were you pretty confident then that transitioning also from Challenge Stadium into the the, the much much bigger um, Perth Arena? I call it Perth Arena because it changes yeah. its titles from time to time. But um, you know, which has a capacity of what twelve thirteen thousand yeah. um, at, at its max. Were you quietly confident? That you had the support there, given the, the the cultural change around the club, were you pretty confident that that the fans would follow you in droves and get bums on seats in the arena? I think we tripped over something unique, mm-hmm. and I remember being asked to do a, a talk in Melbourne to some sports administrators, and it was very early in the piece. It was about three years in, and I noticed something different because I homeschool my kids. Yep. But, Which I want to ask you about later because that <laughs> fascinates me. But everyone else sends their kids to school. And I tripped over this and I, I call it the defining moment yeah. right? because I'm new to sport and, and I ask a lot of questions. And if you're a kid, and if you can get to a kid or under the age of 12, right, you get to a kid under the age of 12 and you have a defining moment. And that could be an athlete saying good day to him. You're giving him a sticker or a scarf or a, a T-shirt or a singlet. He's a fan for life, mm. right? And if you ask yourself – or anyone you know, how did you become a Collingwood fan? Well, my grandfather gave me a cap. Yeah. Why did you become an You know, I was at school. How did you become? Well, well, Ricky Grace came to my school when I was 12. And so we tripped over this defining moment theory and we said, hang on a tee. If, you can, if I can get a fan for, and you've got to do a lot to stuff it up. I mean, you could be the most <laughs> losing club and you still go to the games, right? Mm. You still go, you know what? I'm going to support the Dockers until they win a championship. And so you, it, you're in for life. So, you, yeah. you know, all you've got to do is hit the defining moment. So we thought, hang on, what if we, just, we met the most number of kids in WA that we could meet? And that's where we created these 350 hours in the community. Yep. We said, you know what, we're going to go to do 200, 250 schools a year. And every time we saw 25 kids, there's 25 Wildcats fans. Mm. And once we got momentum and we knew we were going to Perth Arena, we just put that on steroids, you know, and, and so by the time we got to the end of our time at Challenge Stadium, we were sold out. Yeah. And, and we just couldn't fit another person in. Mm. So we knew that we would have a reasonable fighting chance at Perth Arena. Yeah. And, and apart from the grassroots uh, support that you were able to foster there, um, you know, at the other end, while you're trying to make the, the books work for the club generally, um, a sponsorship opportunity came up with uh, the TAB, which, mm-hmm. which you – rejected um can you tell us why you did that because you know i suppose for for a lot of clubs if they're in that financial uh position they may be tempted to take you know a a somewhat controversial sponsorship opportunity up well we the first bit is we actually did we did take them on and the moment we took them on and this is why reality is so much more interesting than 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 fiction and we, we took them on and it hit me so hard because we started to see inside our organization stories of, of people who've been dealing with sports gambling. Yeah. Now, what we know about sports gambling is it mainly targets men, right? And it's structured. It's structured at such a young age through various hybrid versions of online betting and online playing, and it, 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 almost, it almost grooms you into sports gambling. And we didn't know any of this back then. Yeah. They were the early days of sports gambling. So, the, so what year are we talking about here? 
I want to say 2010 or 2009. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a while back. Within a year, I knew and made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul and Jack's son, Paul Bendat, God rest his soul, was an anti gambling campaigner. Right. And, and whilst we immediately we had a conversation, he said, This is not great. So we flew down to Melbourne, caught up with him, and the penny dropped. We'd made a mistake. So we got out as soon as we can. And then mm. we spent all our time fighting it because mm. uh, the two greatest the two greatest ills i think uh, you know there's alcohol and sport but far greater than that is sports gambling and we're going to see a lot more pain and suffering I, I, when the argument comes up i sort of get um I, I get a bit of both arguments um you know people who say well it's my right to choose whether i want to have a punt i dare say they're probably not your your problem gamblers and it's the problem gamblers that are most at risk, aren't they, of getting, as you say, sort of seduced and groomed into this way of thinking and sort of thinking about sport as a betting opportunity. Have we got the balance completely wrong here in Australia between the you know the, the proliferation of, of gambling advertising and, and tempting people into gambling uh, versus the, I suppose, the commercial realities of high-end sport? Well, um, I come from India, which has its own history of sins in this area, mm-hmm. and I've fallen into sport. And... Whilst I think there's an argument to keep it legal, there is absolutely no argument to promote it. And and I think if a sport tells you that we need sports betting money to keep the sport going, well, let's shut the sport down because it's not worth it. Mm. What about alcohol? I think the same of alcohol. Yeah. I, I, and I think, again, if challenges sports are harder, right? Uh, and I think the I think we've made a... We've lost our way here in WA with some of the way we've managed funding for sports that walk away from alcohol. Yeah. Um, but on face value, when you talk about the top tier sports, there shouldn't be alcohol funding in yeah. top tier sports. They don't need it. I suppose a lot of the recent uh, debate around uh, commercial arrangements with sporting organisations and leagues uh, is around fast food. A similar approach to that? Again, there's a responsibility to promote a, a healthy way of life? I think the fast food um, movement may have matured yep. and tipped over. I think that regardless of how many ads you see for McDonald's and Hungry Jacks, I think we've thought ourselves like to wear a seatbelt that, you know, yeah, have it once a, once a month or so is okay, but it's just genuinely bad for you. It's got so many preservatives and it's so artificial that it's not good for you. And mm. I think we may have tipped that one over, but it's not great advertising. Mm. You know, sports people can be such great – role models for such good causes and messages that I don't think, especially the top-tier sports, need to rely on those evils. Mm. I want to ask you about the links as well as uh, your time uh, with World Series Rugby, and I'm fascinated by um, your homeschooling endeavours as well, Nick. Father of six, no less. So I, I just want to get you to share some insights into what that's like, homeschooling six kids. Uh, at your house, but we'll have to do that after a break. This is Inspiring Stories with Nick Marvin, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Back with more soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, in this episode, we're speaking to Nick Marvin. Uh, Nick, just before we get on to uh, your more more recent uh, endeavours with uh, Twiggy Forest uh, and rugby, can you just take us back to, I think, uh, about 2015? Um, you'd been the CEO of the Wildcats. 
uh, an extraordinary period of success, multiple titles. Uh, you were the chairman uh, of the league as well, uh, and yet you decided to take on a new project. Tell us about that time in your life around 2015. Yeah, well, the league chairman role, and, and I don't think I don't think uh, people appreciate how awful the league was and mm. how much uh, strife it was in and and the work it took to to turn it around there were some great people involved in that uh, including Jack's son Paul who was a great friend and we had some very treasured times together during that time um but we finished that and and I was getting a bit um uh, you know a bit bored and I remember cuz cuz and did you tell Jack that were you, yeah. were, you were you able to tell Jack Jack on board yeah, I'm, we, I'm running your club but on board Jack and I became pretty close, and you know, he used to always call me the third child because <laughs> he had a he had a couple of major medical issues, and sure. and, and uh, well, Paul was in Melbourne, and, and his other his daughter was also spending time in Melbourne because that their kids were in Melbourne, mm. so it was often Jack, Eleanor, and I, and and almost every day I'd go visit him after work and take him for a walk or have a whiskey with him and chat for an hour or so. So during these times, which were great, you know, great memories, we, we talk, talked about I was getting bored and and he said, well, the women's sport was on the horizon, you know, it was starting to make movements and the Perth women's, the West Australian women's basketball team had not really performed. Mm. So he said, why don't we acquire it and why don't we try to do with it what we did with the Wildcats? And and I did think then that, and I, as I do now, there are still some limitations commercially that need to work through. Not insurpassable, but we need to work through those in women's sport. Um, and we went in with that. We knew that we would have a tough time financially. You like a challenge, don't you? Yeah. But the Wildcats <laughs> were throwing enough profits to fund the women's team and cover any losses. And that's the premise we started with. We said, mm. you know what? The worst case scenario is we'll still wipe our face. Mm. So let's go give it a crack. Mm. Um, but then Jack... Um, was on board, like, we got to pay them full-time wages. Mm. And it had never been done before in Australia. So this is the first time ever in Australian sport yep. that a professional female athlete had been given a full-time, full-time wage. wage. That's, that's quite a landmark moment, isn't it? It is. It is. For a guy that's got four daughters, it was, it was great. I went home with my head held high because I wanted my daughters to think that they're just as good as their brothers and they could give it a crack. Anything they wanted to do, they could give it a crack. And so... Yeah. When we hired these these athletes and paid them a full time wage, um, and hired full time support staff and gave them everything that the men did, and every time we made a decision, our benchmark our benchmark was do the same as we do the, for the men. Yeah. And, and whilst um, whilst it was difficult and costly, and I got credit Jack for it, um, I think it was well worth the exercise. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you finish up with the Wildcats uh, mid twenty seventeen. Um, you then, sometime after that, uh, form a, a partnership with Andrew Twiggy Forrest. How did that come about? Because I, I'm sensing a, a bit of a pattern here. You, you seem to be the man who turns up in a when there's a crisis or a, or a fairly significant challenge in front of a, of a sporting organisation, and you're like, I mean, talk about a man with a cape. You know, uh, you, you've almost got got your own cape there. I think Nick. A bit of luck helps. <laughs> um, so I I've been trying to get out of sport. 
<laughs> not know, doing very well. People always say it's hard to get into sport. Yeah. It's so hard to get out. You know, I can't get a job interview outside of sport, but <laughs> I'd, I'd worked as a consultant for hockey and really enjoyed it. I mean, the hockey community is a great community and, yep. and really a very enjoyable time. And I remember a mutual friend rang me and said, oh, Andrew's going to call you. We need you to come on board. And then I never heard from him for a while. It was like did, a month later. Did you know later. him already? Do I know, did I know did Andrew? Did you know, know him prior to that? Through Jack. So right. Andrew and uh, Andrew was a big supporter of the Lynx, actually. came and watched a few games when we first bought the team. Yep. And was always very respectful for what we did. Um, and so when this mutual friend said Andrew would call and took a month or so, and then out of the blue, as you expect, Andrew called on a Sunday. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was actually having a cigar with a friend. And he said, you, uh, can I see you? I said, when I'm having a cigar, I mean, so he, sent, <laughs> he sent one of his staff to meet with me and we chatted for about an hour and a half and she drove back to his house and said, and told him what happened. And he said, you need to come see him. I said, I smell, I've been smoking. He said, I oh, just come over anyway. So we went over to his house and chatted for a bit. And uh, at the end of that, I started working for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and tell us about that period of your life though, because I mean, a time of extraordinary upheaval and turmoil for, for rugby here in WA. Yeah, quite tragic, actually, the way it was managed. And, and I think the papers have reported very well mm. how badly it was managed. Oh, shockingly. Um, and without offending too many people, I think I think that if I was to generalise the state of rugby, it's in terrible, terrible, uh, you know, it's been mismanaged yeah. um, by people possibly with good intentions. I don't really know, but certainly mismanaged uh, at all levels, I think, sadly. Yeah. Um, so we arrived and we have this team and the heart of the sport, you know, taken out of Western Australia. And Andrew has this great, you know, mm. such a he's the he's got the biggest heart of a man I've ever met, mm. you know. And he spends his whole life, every working waking moment, giving away money. Mm. That's what Andrew does, and mm. and I don't know too many people who do that with such great passion and integrity. So. Um, so it was this meeting of great values, and, and we tried to resurrect the sport, really. Yeah. And we hit a lot of brick walls. Uh, interestingly, in my experience, world rugby has been really good, mm. uh, and a lot of rugby nations have been amazing, you know, yeah. uh, Fiji rugby. And the Crusaders, the number one rugby team in the world, we rang them up. The chairman comes over to visit. It's like, whatever you want, guys, we're in. We'll come and play you in Perth. Yeah. And this is one of the best teams going out of their way to support this initiative. Yeah. And it was awesome. Uh, and, you know, we had to run. So in late February, we decided to go ahead. And our first game was 4th of May. So within effectively 90 days, we had to put a team together, get a venue contract in place, sell tickets, fill a venue, and put on a show, you know. And, and one of the things that I think rugby does need is it needs a better match day experience. So our focus was how do you make this so that I want to go and I'm not a rugby guy? And so everything we did in those 90 days was to make rugby something that you would take your family to. Yeah. Kind of like we did with basketball, but mm. outdoors. Mm. And outdoors is hard because you're playing against, you know, I always say, what are the biggest competitors to outdoor sport? It's Netflix and rain, you know. And so it <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter what you do, the rain's going to get you. And, and yeah. you know, we had to have all this secondary planning for if it rained. Yeah. And fantastic to see the the people of Perth uh, and WA respond uh, with so much enthusiasm for it. Uh, and I loved even seeing social media light up with, uh, you know, people posting pictures of the crowds 
uh, going along to see the force uh, as opposed to you know the clubs that remained in the you know the the super rugby league um, that had a quarter of that in much bigger cities it was fantastic to see that as a as a west australian yeah the numbers are good the numbers mm. are good and that says something about wa and you know and that's why i love this state and this city i mm. mean we are we've arrived mm. and you can put something on and and west australians will show up and support it you know yep. authentically do so as well yeah um, I want to ask you about homeschooling. I'm determined to ask you about that. I'm going to do that after the break, Nick. So that's your homework. Prepare for it. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, Nick Marvin is our special guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Uh, back with more here on 882 6PR very soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. And we are hearing the inspiring story of Nick Marvin. We've heard all about uh, your sporting uh, accolades over the years, uh, Nick, but I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to hear about uh, homeschooling six kids. How did that go? And, and firstly, why? Why did you homeschool? Well, it has a little bit to do with my faith. Yeah. And I was, you know, I'm a terrible Catholic, but I I try, I give it a crack every day. And my wife happens to be the same. And I remember we we met in February of 1996. And within about four weeks, we thought, oh, we're probably going to get married. And um, so we started talking about serious stuff, you know, and... We got engaged, I think, about four weeks later or six weeks later, got married wow. Got married that year. Um, and during that time, my wife said, you know, if we have kids, I'd like to homeschool them. And she's from Queensland, you know, the sun, Sunshine Coast. And I thought, this is really hippie kind of stuff. And we should really send our kids to a real school. And <laughs> what am I doing here? And so I said, I'll tell you what, I'll spend the next, till we have a child, I'll read up about it. And I did. And I, I bought into it. Yeah. Right. And and then our daughter was born, Anastasia, and I said to my wife, "Look, we'll give it three years, three years from birth to three. If she can read, she stays homeschooled. If she can't read, we put her in school. And at three, she started reading. Yeah. And uh, and so we thought, hang on, this that's which is pretty good for a three year old. And so we thought, well, the academic side's working, and I'd already bought into the other stuff. And that is, I've always believed that it's you know quantity time at home." and quality time at work. I've always believed that I can't outsource parenting and teaching mm. my kids values. Mm. As good as they're going to be, that's not going to be me. Mm. I'd rather outsource the lawn mowing, right, than, than actually being a dad. And so to have my kids, whatever crazy views and values I have, to at least explain it to them and live it in front of them and have them buy into it was the reason why I'll be homeschooled. Mm. Now there's other issues as well with with schools, and, and, and I think that – um, we do. We will see more and more issues with schools, and schools are a new phenomenon from the Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, farmers used to always homeschool their kids. It's just that we started moving into cities that we started putting kids in school, and having everyone in the same age bracket doesn't make sense to me either. Mm. You know, life is you're always hanging out with people of different ages, and for ten or twelve years to put a child in a group of kids the same age is very unnatural, and 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 there's a lot of other reasons as well. So. So that's how we ended up homeschooling, and mm. my wife's a, an amazing, amazing human being. She'd have to be. For the yeah. long hours that she does, yeah. not just planning the curriculum, but teaching, and then the, and then the examinations and then yeah. the audits that we get 
from the government, which is very good, um, and then getting them into university. You know, it's, so it's been so it's been great and yeah. and a great journey. Yeah, um, you're also a, a published author. Uh, you released a book a few years ago, uh, which I'll get you to tell you about. Tell us about in a moment if we have time. Um, but but you also, I, I'm curious to hear about how you got a Rolling Stone writing award uh, back in the early nineties. The early nineties. I, what what on earth were you doing to to get a, a Rolling Stone Writing Award, Nick Marvin? Look, I was struggling with English when I came to Australia, and my English teacher gave me a lot of attention, yeah. which made me fall in love with the with the language. And so, when I was at uni studying accounting, which is what my parents wanted me to do, I had this passion for writing. So, I somehow got myself as the student editor for Monash University's newspaper. And the same thing, I looked at the newspaper and said, I don't want to read this, it's rubbish, you know. And so I said, what if we had a lot of pop culture and youth culture and address some real issues like teenage suicide and, 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 and music? And so we, we, we wrote, changed the format and, you know, advertising grew and the thing, circulation went up. And we would ring up musicians and say, I want to interview, like, you know, when, when MC Howard came to town and Peter <laughs> Garrett and... And it so, so turned out that Midnight Oil were doing a charity concert and they agreed to do four interviews. And I rang him up and said, I want to interview Peter Garrett. And again, you're 21 and you're bulletproof. And he said yes. And so we did this great interview. And his agent actually um, saw an article I did on Tommy Emanuel and said, this is a good story. It's got to go to Rolling Stone magazine. And so I said, all right, I'll send it in. And and then it won a writing award. Wow. And after that, it was a lot easier to get interviews <laughs> with, with rock journalists. But uh, I found myself in Hong Kong with Molly Meldrum, Richard Wilkins, and um, Christy Elias and Glenn A. Baker and myself. Wow. Covering this music conference. And after that, I thought, that's you know. That's quite a quite a crew. It was. It was great. <laughs> and and after, that, after that trip, I thought, hmm. I don't think I can do this when I'm 50. <laughs> so I had to find a real quick way to get out of being a yeah. rock journalist. What a transition from that world then to the one you're in now. So what does the future hold for you then, Nick? I know you, you're still going to have some involvement, if I'm, if I'm right, uh, with Global Rapid Rugby. Um, what, what else have you got on the cards? I, or do you not plan too, too far ahead? You, things just happen. Uh, I have great faith in, in, in God and destiny, and, and I, I would like to work in a not-for-profit yeah. Or something that has a more meaningful contribution. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed sport. Um, I will still do sport if I need to feed my family, but ideally, <laughs> ideally I'd love to get out of sport, you know, and, and do something where I can contribute more. And, yeah. And I know it's tough mm. and times are tough, but right now I'm just enjoying um, hanging out with the kids. My, my eldest got married a couple of weeks ago, and, and so sometimes life hands you a break. Mm. And for a guy that's been working full time, really, since I was 18 or 19, mm. I'm enjoying this break. Yeah. But I'm also looking forward to the next chapter. Yeah, fantastic. How old are the kids now? You said one's just got married? My eldest is 20, my youngest yeah. is four. Four? Yeah. Wow. So there's still a bit of homeschooling to go. And a lot of work left yeah. in me, too. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about having to, uh, you know, pay the bills and, and, and feed the home, yeah, you've still got a few few people and a few mouths under your roof for a few more years to come. Well, we look forward to hearing about uh, your future uh, endeavours, Nick. I'm, I'm sure you'll bring the same same success to everything you do uh, in the years ahead. And thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, Nick Marvin, uh, that is the inspiring story uh, for today. Thank you to Bower and O'Day. Uh, everyone has a story and you can hear one every week here on 882 6PR, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? 
Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.